Gresham College presents Expert Witnesses, A Zero-Sum Game by Professor Joe Delahunty QC. Tonight's lecture is the fifth in the series of six I've given in this my first year. And you will have noticed, I hope, to those of you that have watched or listened to some of the previous ones, that I've been trying to overlay information each time so that what you get at the end of the series is a much broader understanding about what being a child protection barrister, because that's what I am, does in court, and what happens in the family court, because the majority of you simply won't have had the chance to know and experience what goes on behind closed doors. Uh, tonight's lecture is the one that I think is both the most distressing to undertake as a practitioner and the most important for the public to understand. And it is about the significance of medicine in the family courtroom. So if you want to pass the message while we're going on, you've got the tweet uh, issues down here. Please use them. And I forgot to do the housekeeping. If anyone's got their mobile on, on, on audio, then click it on down. So here we are. All right, introduction. Um, this, as I say, it's a parallel lecture to the one that I delivered last month, which was on a case called Alalas and Ray, just so I've got a show of hands to know how much of that I can take as read. Did any of you come to or have a chance to listen? Excellent. Good Lord. Right. Perfect. Right. Well, that was deliberately designed to try to give you an instance based on a real-life child and a real family about why science and medicine can be the difference to outcome. Tonight's lecture is to give you an overview, but with that history in mind, and I'll come back to it in a little while, I'll try to explain to you what it is that we do in court. So the notes that accompany this lecture, I should say, have got masses more detail in than simply this audio will contain or the slides up on the screen. Uh, my practice as a lawyer means that I have to reference everything. You'll have case citations and you'll have practice direction documents quoted. But that otherwise loses the flow if I'm trying to talk to you about what I do. So if in doubt, wait until you get the lecture notes and read them through because that's got, as I say, a lot more material than simply that which I'm about to speak to. So medicine in the family law. How many of you will have read of this headline just this week? Vegan mo mother forced to vaccinate her children in high court ruling. Right. Now, you will have read, possibly in some detail, but not at all, there is a full law report about it, which sets out that this was an issue between the mother and the father. The father wanted the child, children vaccinated, the mother didn't. The hospital um, agreed that the children should be vaccinated, and so it came before the court, effectively for the court to decide, because the parents couldn't. That's one of the situations in which medical care comes to the attention of the court. And you can see here by the quote of the judge that what he is recognising is that although he has carried out an evaluation exercise, he is conscious that you can't please everyone when it comes to matters of this nature. We can be objective, or at least we can try to be, but for any parent who has a child, there is nothing more important than doing what you think is right for that child. And you will carry that belief to the best of your ability and efforts to the point where there's nothing more you can do. And that is why in those situations you need a court to determine what is right for the child, because sometimes, even with the best of motives, parents can't agree on what's necessary. What about this little boy? Um, do you remember this little boy from last year, 2014? Now this I've deliberately chosen as a 2015 entry because it goes to illustrate the end of a saga that began with so much distress and worry. If you remember, it first hit the news in 2014 
because the hospital raised the alarm because the parents and the child had left the hospital ward ostensibly without the authority or permission of the treating medics and the medics were concerned that by the removal of that child he was going to be deprived of necessary life-saving treatment and so the hospital brought the matter to court. You might remember that the news media picked this story up. The family were tracked down internationally. They were stopped abroad. And the question that a judge had to answer in this jurisdiction was, what do I do about the child who's already left our jurisdiction for good reason, according to the parents, because they wanted to give him what they thought was life-saving proton beam therapy. Nonetheless, I'm hearing from the medics that that's a position which is against their medical advice. What do I do? Do I force the parents to come back to the United Kingdom with the child? Do I allow them to continue on the journey with the child? And that's an example of where the court has to intervene in a situation where evidence is emerging and a full picture may not be known. Now, in this instance, um, the life-saving treatment was permitted and we learnt in 2015 that it had been effective. I provide that as an illustration because don't think that the courts always side with the medics. Sides aren't important when it comes to looking at the medical condition of a child. It's the quality of the information that's given to the court that enables the court to make an objective decision. What about Charlie? Charlie Gard. Now, this is, this is a matter that's been in the court now for a few weeks, not simply the last few days. You will all have read and seen about the distress that the parents are in because of the decision that was made yesterday. I don't think there can be any more graphic illustration about the depths that any parent will go to to secure the treatment for their child. There is never such a thing as I give up for a loving parent. And in this instance, the parents wanted to take Charlie, as you'll know, to America for what they believed was going to be pioneering life-saving treatment. What you might not know is that this application was brought by Great Ormond Street Hospital, who had had Charlie in their care that it was um, a, a case that was brought before the court where there was no right to legal representation for the parents. It was within wardship, which means it's means and merit tested. And so the lawyers acting for these parents acted pro bono. The judge, the child was also, Charlie was also represented. And what the judge had to do in order to come to that decision was to go through what is effectively a matter of life and death in terms of evaluating what's in the child's best interests. And let me just give you a glimpse behind the scenes by letting you know what lies behind that headline. It's a long list, but I put it there. I did think about bringing them up one at a time. But actually, even though I've truncated it and summarised it, it's there in full so you can see the range of issues that the court needs to consider. The first thing that's not there and should be there is that the child is the subject of the court's decision because the child itself doesn't have capacity. Charlie clearly doesn't have capacity to make his own decisions, but that would apply with decreasing relevance the older the child gets. And just to give you another example from these, do you remember a little while back, there was a 12-year-old little girl that wanted to be cryogenically frozen after her death? Right. Now, in that instance, she was 12. And although she was represented by a guardian, she had very clear expressed wishes that she wanted the court to hear. And the judge in that case, Mr Justice Peter Jackson, went to go and see her in hospital to talk to her about her wishes and in order to explain to her what his role was. So that gives you the difference, the range, between what the judge has to take into account depending on the age of the child. 
Charlie here, young as he was, had no capacity, and therefore we look to other people to inform us as to what he needs and for the court to make the decision. The first point is a really important one. It's an objective test. The judge isn't sitting there in that role, putting in place a decision he would make for his own child. He's not in that role making a decision that the medics would make for the child. And he's clearly not in the position making a decision which the parents would make for the child, otherwise the case wouldn't have been in the court at all. What the judge has to do is to put the child's welfare in an objective sense at the forefront of his considerations. And that means, what, what, what's the child's paramount best interests? Because although there is a paramount drive to survive, instinctively, physiologically and physically in any human body, there's also the cost of survival, which can sometimes outweigh it. So the pain of invasive medical treatment, the likely success of the medical treatment, the anxiety of those around you, that's, it's, it's ephemeral in many ways, because just by giving you those examples, I'm already conscious that when you come up with one, you'll be thinking about another. But that's why this massive spectrum of what-ifs and buts has to be taken into account by the court. Um, there is, as I say here, a very strong presumption uh, attached to the prolongation of life because that's our human driver, but it may surprise you to know that's not the overriding criteria because we recognise there could be a disbenefit to treatment as well as benefits. The significance of the parental views, you may ask, why weren't they determinant? Why couldn't it be that because Charlie's parents wanted to have this treatment for their child, that they could do to their child as they wished because he was their child? And that goes right back to the very first lecture I gave to you. It's because children have a rights independent of their parents. They are not our chattels. It's why we don't have the right to abuse them and to strike them. It's why, in this instance, what a parent wants for a child subjectively may not objectively be what is in that child's best interest. So however persuasive, however passionate, and however heartfelt a parent's wishes are, they are one factor that needs to be taken into account by the judge, but not the only factor. It weighs the parental views alongside the medical views as well. So that's um, trying to give you an idea of those matters that would have been in the judge's mind. And I'm just before I come on to that, with that... Have any of you had a chance to look at the press release that was actually issued by the judge that did the trial? I suspect not, uh, and again for good reason. Although it's publicly available, the information you get about cases such as this is dependent on the quality of the press reporting you have. The judgment is going to be publicly available, but a press release was issued yesterday. And let me just give you some headlines behind uh, the news story that might go to explain why the judge came to this decision he did. The first thing is that the life-saving treatment that the parents wanted for Charlie had come to their attention because of a particular specialist in the United States. His evidence was heard and given in this case, and moreover, he spoke to Great Ormond Street Hospital about it. What we learn from um, his information is that even he um, had indicated as follows, which was that Charlie had, by the time this decision being made, suffered such acute brain damage that effectively his brain um, had ceased to be able to function independently. Secondly, Charlie's condition had deteriorated to the point when even the parents agreed that his quality of life was so limited that he should not continue in that state. 
that led to the two extremes, therefore. Should, on the application of the doctors, the medical treatment be withdrawn in a, um, in a dignified way, with palliative care being given so he died a natural death, or should the other alternative be approached, which was taking Charlie to um, America for this, what they thought would be life-saving treatment. So you can see those two extremes. In balancing those up, what hasn't been made uh, public so far, um, although there is material in the public domain to do so, is that it was the degree of brain damage that had already happened that was a decisive factor for the judge in deciding that the treatment offered by America would in fact have no effect. And he based that decision because the United States expert said so himself. And the United States expert has said that he agreed, based on the state of encephalopathy, he agreed it's very unlikely that his treatment would improve Charlie's condition. He also went on to explain that Charlie's condition was so unique that the treatment he was advocating had never been tested not only on any live human being, but hadn't even been tested on the mouse, mouses that he was using to test the treatment itself. And moreover, he indicated that there was no evidence that he had that the treatment he had been attesting to on, um, on animals could transmute and be relevant to Charlie because there was no evidence that effectively the, uh, it could cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, with that additional information, you might have a greater understanding about why the judge said, despite the wishes of the parents for this treatment to be tried, uh, tried for Charlie, nonetheless, upon looking at it really closely and analytically, even the expert in America said it could be nothing more than a total experiment. And we don't have children to experiment on particularly when experimentation comes with the cost. And if you have intubation, if you have to move a child, then that by itself requires a process of change and distress, which can have unfortunate consequences. And the experts and the medics were agreed that Charlie's capacity to feel pain is unknown. Therefore, you can't assume that he is insensible to that which happens. So that, that gives you an idea, I hope, and please do look at the full judgment when it comes out, about the type of quality of evidence that the judge was receiving in order to come to that decision. It's heartrending, I know, but important, I think, as an example to see about the level of care and attention that everyone, the medics, the parents and the court, try to um, look at when deciding what to happen in a case such as this. And don't forget that Charlie, baby as he was, had separate representation himself. Now, the cases I've just run through can be nothing other than an illustration about what love wants to achieve for a child. In the cases I've given, there is nothing I have said and nothing in the cases that's indicated to say that there's any suspicion or, uh, of abuse or any, anything other than goodwill and understanding by the medics towards the parents about the dilemma they were having to deal with. Now, that is a very different category, category case to the rest of the uh, context of this lecture, which is this slide here. What happens in cases where a young baby dies under the sole care of a parent or some type of childminder, whether it's a family relative or t'other? The child can't give a clue to the clinicians as, what, as to what has happened, and experts, prosecuting authorities must reconstruct as best they can what has happened. Babies die whether through benign causes or abuse, and parents can be falsely accused of abuse, but they can also lie to cover it up. The court's duty is to protect any surviving child from harm, and that requires hard choices, because as also you'll know, 
Whereas the media will tell you, quite rightly, of instances where children have been wrongly removed from parents because later discovered scientific evidence goes to show that the injuries that they sustained were benign in origin, potentially. Equally, we have cases where child children have been returned to carers who've then been killed or harmed by the parent who the um, court had deemed the child was safe to be with. And that is why there is no harder choices and no harder practice to follow in than to be a child protection barrister and a child protection judge. If a child is removed from a parent and a family because of suspected abuse, in our country we have adoption. And we follow a system of closed adoptions, which means that a child once removed and placed for adoption has no further, in the main, direct contact with their family. It is an irrevocable legal step because adoption severs not just the visual ties, not just the visual, the, the physical um, continuity of life between a child and its parents and its family, but it severs the legal ties as well. The parents are no longer in law the parents of the child that has been adopted. And that is why making a decision as to whether a child has been seriously harmed or not is so fundamental. This is a quote which for me, identifies why child protection legal aid lawyers go to the lengths they do to try to help the court make the right decision. With the state's abandonment of the right to impose capital sentences, orders of the kind which family judges are typically invited to make in public law proceedings are amongst the most drastic that any judge in any jurisdiction is ever empowered to make. That came from the president of the family division um, when... Uh, some years back now in 2013. But think about it. If this judge is comparing capital punishment in terms of its finality and seriousness to the consequences of removing a child from the family, it should give you more than any other indication, proof positive that no judge in the family division or no judge sitting in these matters is unaware of the consequences of the decisions they make because they can be final and irrevocable. As you say here, you if you have a child placed for adoption, it's not simply the family that carry the scars of that, but the child will grow up in an entirely different network. They will have a different, a different experience of life. They won't know what their natural family are, save through indirect contact and whatever contact they seek to find out in later years. But life for the child goes on at a pace out with that of the family who've lost a child. It is an awesome responsibility. Now, the cases I'm about to discuss and warning here can be very distressing because in the work we do, we talk about what happens to a child in a dispassionate way because, frankly, otherwise we couldn't cope. We have to look at post-mortem photographs, looking at post-mortem photographs of a child before they are dissected, <coughs> of a child in life by the pictures and the cam images and the social media feed that we receive, and then we are reduced to looking at case records and case notes about the child that we are trying to reconstruct the moments of life of prior to death. There is nothing more humbling, more terrifying and more distressing than having to look at images of a child pre and post postmortem. In the language we use, we deliberately try to insulate ourselves from some of the reality of what we are seeing. I will spare you the details clearly in this lecture, but I put it there as a forerunner, because in the way I want to deal with this lecture, I do not want you to think that there's anything but huge sadness in anyone that practices within these fields about a young life cut short. So questions for today's lecture are as follows. 
why do we use experts in the family cases and why do we use them so differently in family cases as opposed to crime? What are the duties of experts in family cases? Why are treating experts, not medics, not experts enough given the degree of competence, skill and care they bring to their profession? Why science and medicine has to be placed in the context of all the evidence that's made available to the, final, to the family court? What we do as legal aid lawyers? And why science and the courts don't have the answers? Because the purpose of these lectures has been throughout to try to to try to deconstruct the myths about what happens in the family court and also to be really frank that we don't have all the answers, which is why when mistakes are made, we need to confront them, acknowledge them and learn from them rather than pretending that everything <coughs> in the system we work is um, entirely as it should be. So, a child dies in suspicious circumstances. That means that um, there will be a post-mortem. Invariably, what happens is there'll be a 999 call, the child will be taken to hospital, the child then dies, and there will be an assessment of the circumstances leading up to his death. And from that moment, the clock starts ticking, because as soon as there is some suspicion by the medics that the child has died of an unnatural death, then the police will be informed, as will the social services, and the post-mortem is the first opportunity that the medics and the experts have to try to deconstruct the days, months and minutes leading up to the point that's led the child to that sad state. In our instances, the local authority will apply to come to court if there is another child who's going to be affected by the death of that child in the instant case. Remember what I've said in previous lectures, the family division is the, the family cases are the only forum where the court looks to the past in order to decide the future. The criminal jurisdiction is there in order to decide what has happened in the past and to pass either punishment or acquittal as a consequence of what they identified. But the family court becomes involved only if another child is going to be affected by what's happened to another. And that's why this is, it's relevant in terms of local authority applying. When the local authority apply, they are going to be applying on the basis of the information best known to them at that point, which is likely to come from the treating medics and from the provisional view taken at the post-mortem. So far as the criminal trial is concerned, that will pick up a pace. The police authorities will already have their forensic pathologist undertaking the examination. The forensic pathologist will already have in mind those people to whom he is going to send samples of the child's body for further assessment. That will include as a minimum, if it's suspected shaking, examination of the eyes, the bones, the brain, and various x-ray imagery in terms of the um, skin and the brain, uh, the brain functioning. When the criminal trial gets to the point that charge is made, the Crown will already got an array of experts that they have um, sought and relied upon, because otherwise they won't be proceeding with the trial. And so in that instance, the defence team will already know to some degree what the sophistication of the police expert evidence is, and they will have their right to secure their own experts in order to challenge the case put against them, because it is very much the state against the individual. This is when it comes to green eyes here. Right. The difference, what happens in crime? In criminal cases, you can acquire an expert's advice without needing the advance permission of the court and without notifying the Crown that you're seeking a particular expert in that specialism. You can talk to the expert you're instructing, 
both in terms either of a draft report or in terms of a general dialogue, which enables you as the legal team to understand the strengths and weaknesses of your case. You can, if necessary, potentially get a second opinion from an expert if the first has been more negative than you had hoped. And if the report is negative, you don't have to give it to anyone. When you get to trial with the expert that's gone through that process, you don't stand at the Joe Nomates in the front of the court cross-examining another equally eminent expert um, in terms of cross-examining in their own sphere. You can have, in that situation, the ability of your expert who has already guided you and provided you with their opinion to give you some cues about what questions to take, what issues to explore. That is a remarkable an incredibly valuable opportunity because we are briefs, all right? We're lawyers. I'm not, you know, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I am not a paediatrician. I'm not an immunologist. I'm none of those things. I am a COD expert because I try to learn about those things sufficiently to cross-examine those people who are in the witness box, but I have not got the expertise that they have acquired over the course of decades of hard work and diligence. So think of the advantage of being in a criminal court where you have someone who does have that eminence and that expertise, where they are able to understand and explain to you in quick time succession just what points you need to put that witness in the witness box. Hence my green eyes. And it was that really that led to the title of the lecture, which is a zero-sum game, because, again, coming back to previous lectures, in the criminal courts, you'll remember that the case has to be proven by the Crown against the defendant beyond all reasonable doubt. So I hate using percentages, but let's say 99-1. If you've got two equally eminent experts who look at the same facts and come to differing conclusions <coughs> about the likely cause of death, how are you, as a member of the jury, going to decide which expert view you prefer? Even if you do prefer one, has that dissenting expert left you with a scintilla of doubt in your mind about whether or not truly you can rely on the evidence? And given your duty is to make a decision beyond all reasonable doubt, you may acquit. So let's move on to what happens in the family court. When do we get experts in? Necessity, necessity, necessity. We can't get them as an optional value added extra. They can only be instructed if they are going to be necessary for the fair determination of the case. No party can instruct an expert without permission of the court. That's absolute. We can't reveal any details of the case to an expert by ringing them up or emailing them. We can't tentatively probe what opinion they may give by just planting some seeds of information in them. That would be professionally negligent and irresponsible. No expert can be approached with details of the case unless you have made a proper application to the court on notice. That means everyone in the family case knows that you are making an application. And in terms of the details you have to give, one, the expert will ordinarily be UK-based, again, unlike in um, the criminal cases where they have much greater flexibility to go beyond um, our shores. Two... You have to provide your draft questions, the CV, timescale, and cost. The courts will want this to be a joint instruction. What that means is you don't go off and choose your own expert. 
you present the choice of your expert to the court, and if no one agrees with you, or if, even if they do, the court still has the ultimate say over where, which expert you can instruct and for what purpose. And they will look at the letter of instruction and strike through questions they think are irrelevant. You, having got that expert on board, then don't have the advantage of it being your sole instruction, because of cost, the importance is that it's going to be a joint instruction. That means that everyone piles in. So the information and communication with the experts is entirely open and taken by one lead solicitor and person. Compare that to what I've just said about the criminal procedure, where it's, you can be phone a friend, a much more natural and private dialogue within the defence team. Everything in the family jurisdiction is um, transparent, a word that is the hallmark of the uh, restrictions under which we practice. When we get the report, we all get it at the same time. We don't know what it's saying until it lands in everyone's email box. And unfavourable reports can't be suppressed. Whatever comes in that report is the evidence that the court is going to base a decision on. Um, you can't pick and choose. Like I said here, unfavourable opinions can't be suppressed. Significantly, there is no discussion with the barristers instructed, and we are the ones who's asking the questions in court on, this, on, on the basis of these expert reports. So we have to glean what we can from the written word and from such dialogue as may order to happen between experts in experts' meetings. The expert's duty, and this is the critical one, is to give to the courts a balanced and informed decision, independent of any person that's instructing him. So it's not like, as in some cases, for example, I don't know, in personal injury, where you might know that an expert might more favour finding for the defendant in these type of cases, and another expert might favour finding for the uh, respondent in those cases. In family cases, the court, the expert's duty is to give their opinion based on the facts, their experience and their research, independent of anyone that has any communication with them. Moreover, they have to stick to their area of expertise. This is a controversial area because it's one of the reasons why some of the experts who used to give advice and assistance in the family courts are no longer able and willing to do so. Because it's important that no expert strays outside of their expertise because otherwise the weight of their opinion, the weight of their reputation can unfairly cloud the evidence they give and give it an aura of, um, of respectability, give it an aura of reliability that genuinely it would not have if another expert within that specialism was to be instructed. Mainstream view. Again, this is a controversial area because when an expert gives their opinion, they are to identify whether that which they are saying falls within the mainstream academic and scientific view, understanding science in its role, or whether there are, they are giving something which might be more radical and more extreme. It's important because given there are such limited instruction of experts in the family division, much weight is placed on the conclusions of those individuals we have, and so therefore we need to know if they're the outliers... You know, are they the radical pioneering experts that we need in order to push our understanding of science on? Because there might be a place for that, but not when the child is the subject of the proceedings. Or are they someone who has embraced the broad breadth of what's going on in scientific research, has nonetheless applied it to the facts of that case and said, this is what my opinion is based on science as we understand it now? As I say, lastly, no duty to the person instructing him or her. So... That was the question, why is the use of experts in family, um, family cases so different in crime? The answer is that the welfare of the child is paramount. 
full circle with the previous lectures. The court doesn't want to have selectively provided information placed before it because the consequences of forming a wrong view are so serious and the welfare of the child requires all evidence to be placed in front of it, warts and all. Second question, what's the duty of the expert in family cases? It's to the court and not the party, and that ties in with the very first answer, welfare of the child is paramount. And that takes me on to the third question, which is why do we need experts when we've got medics? So, treating medics. Treating medics operate in a high-octane, highly pressurised environment when they receive a child who is critically ill. They operate literally in less than ideal circumstances. They don't know the full facts. They don't have the full information. They're gathering information as they go. The first interview with a parent, the first interview with a paramedic, the first observations of the child by the nurse, the first observations of the scans that give you an idea about what's going on inside the child's brain. They are gathering information. And in that situation of stress, when they may be making, need to make critical decisions about what treatment the child needs, they have to operate on a risk-averse way of treating. They will not wait if they have to... They will not wait in order to get all the information before treating. That's a luxury that treating medics can't have. They need to do what they can on the information they have to make the best medical decisions for the child at the time the child needs it. It's no point making the best decision for a child when the child's been taken down to the pathology lab. They have to make critical decisions when they are working on that which they can gather. Hospitals are populated by people. Just because someone's got a white coat on doesn't mean to say that they are not human and affected by the drama of that which they are faced with or the distress of that which they are faced with. Doctors and nurses want to understand what has happened and that means they talk. They chat to one another. You know, what's happened? What information have you got? What's going on? Because they're trying to gather all the information they need. Opinions are formed as evidence is emerging and facts are unclear. And the significant part here is because they are the information that is first made known to the police and to social services when suspected child abuse comes to light, it's going to be their opinions which, if indicates non-accidental injuries a potential cause, are going to be placed before the court. That may be significant for um, removing a child from a situation of risk, but that's not the same degree of reflection and care that may be necessary in order to see whether those decisions made in the heat of time were necessary. Let me just give you an example of that. This is Jada, Jaden, who I've spoken to you about. And just note the headline, four-month-old baby with rickets was shaken to death. Brain damage so severe he was incompatible with life. You put the toes two together and you were left with only one impression. That baby was shaken and battered before his death. And his brain damage was of the consequence of the injuries through shaking. There is no other way to read that headline, is there? Now that quote, the second one, came from one of the treating medics at Great Ormond Street Hospital by the name of Dr Peters. The first came from the police officers. And it was those two pieces of information that became known to the press and were published. Why and how, faced with that headline, do family um, practitioners become involved? Surely the case is overwhelmingly open and shut. For those of you that did attend the previous lecture, um, you will know that Jaden had a number of broken bones over the entirety of his body of various ages, including a skull fracture. You will know that he had bleeding both in the brain and behind his eyes, 
and you will know that on any um, level of understanding, this was a child that had a vast range of injuries that were outside the understanding and the medics who were then examining him. Clearly a shaken, battered and abused baby. Except it wasn't. And that when it com that's when it comes down to what we do as child protection barristers in order to understand what has happened in that child's life leading up to the point of death because it's necessary for us to be able to examine whether those accusations are valid or not because the life of another child and the outcome of another child depends on it. So, this is what we do. We get down into the details of a child's life before it simply becomes a sequence of images. CCTV. We looked at the CCTV for uh, Jaden, both on the bus and when he first arrived at the first hospital, and it showed us a child who was not unconscious. It showed us a child who was conscious but with intermittent fitting activity. That was relevant because it came to determine the point at which he may have been either shaken to the point he collapsed immediately or not. When a child is shaken, any of you that attended the last lecture you will know, is that depending on the severity, there is an immediate change in the child's condition. It is not usually expected that a child will present as near normal or alert at a point when they have suffered a shaking injury, particularly a shake of such significant as was suggested here, that their ability to survive is fundamentally affected. Secondly, we looked at the nurses' um, records. We looked to see what the nurses assessed Jaden as when he um, was admitted to hospital. The glasmacoma score, which some of you may be familiar with, goes on a scale, A being alert, and a very efficient um, alert and able nurse practitioner assessed Jaden as having A in terms of uh, alert and awareness on his reception. We also had CCTV, which showed Jaden's progression literally through the corridors of the UCL, when, although there were some indications of seizure activity, nonetheless, this was not a child who was unconscious. The records. We aren't, as I say, medics. Any of you that try to look at a doctor's handwriting and try to decipher what it means will, I think, appreciate the enormity of looking at page after page of medical records in script written in haste, <coughs> interspersed with drug meds, interspersed with feeding charts, interspersed with temperature charts, they're never in any chronological order. They're in different sections. It is very, very difficult indeed to read any type of medical analysis. Then to try to make sense of it is a task all of its own. But what looking at the record showed us is that Jaden had been intubated because they were concerned he might need to have some type of surgery in order to relieve the pressure on his brain. And looking at the records, his seizure activity had intensified and medicines he should have been given to control his seizures were drawn, that means they were prescribed, but they weren't administered. Nonetheless, he was sedated in order to enable the further investigation to continue, so his physical displays of the seizure activity were stunted, but the activity within his brain was unregulated by the medicines that he required. We had to look at the SATS charts, we had to look at his CO2 levels, to work out whether or not a deliberate policy of increasing his carbon dioxide in his blood had been a policy of reducing um, his, um, uh, his level of functioning so that it could be stabilised and contained. Looking at those records was a task we as lawyers undertook, and it revealed that in the four hours that Jaden had been uh, received at UCL, he had, as a judge found, received less than good enough care. It was suboptimal care. From the point that they saw a skull fracture, 
and it was a devastating thing to see. The suspicion immediately turned to child abuse, and at that point, Jaden's anticipated 40-minute absence from the paediatric ward extended to four hours as he went for further tests and further neurology. And that meant that there was no overall paediatric care of his condition, and it was at that point and over that period that his condition declined. So that by the time the retrieval team from Great Ormond Street Hospital arrived, his condition was indeed incompatible with life because his brain had effectively died. At Great Ormond Street Hospital, suspicions of abuse very much now is at highest. It was only then that they examined his eyes and saw that there was bleeding behind them. They hadn't been examined while he's been at UCL and his seizures have been intensifying. Ricketts, at the point then when Jaden died, Dr. Scheinberg was the person instructed by the coroner to undertake the post-mortem and she snapped his bones, which, unbeknownst to most of us, is not an unusual thing to do. She snapped the bones and they were so brittle. They were out, out with her experience and she, she indicated they were moderate to severe. When we later came to trial, Professor Mart Malcolm, who'd been instructed by the police, said he'd only ever come across a case of rickets as severe as Jade in the 1970s. Now, that is not a picture that you would have had from the treating medics, because the treating medics had come to a conclusion based on the information they then had. But it meant that by the time we'd finished the trial, this was the headline that was then able to be promoted and um, distributed to the press. Accused of killing our son, then robbed of our newborn daughter, the couple wrongly blamed for shaking their rickets-stricken baby to death relieved their horrific ordeal. The only reason I can tell you this story in so much detail, and it's contained in more detail in the lecture notes from last month and now, is because we applied on behalf of the parents that they should be released of the restrictions of confidentiality that normally bind the evidence given in relation to any one child's case. We argued successfully that given that which they had suffered over the course of the two years and the amount of adverse publicity they had sustained, it was their right to be able to reclaim their child's life. Otherwise, the very fact that they were able to be reunited with their daughter, uh, Jada, would be overshadowed by the suspicion that might follow them as soon as Jada had a little bump or bruise and she went to the hospital for it, anyone seeing the previous history would have been worried that this was a child who had sustained an injury. So we fought for the right to publish the judgments, including naming the clinicians and the hospitals who treated him, in order that this couple could fully argue and articulate their case and be free for suspicion in the life that they then successfully had with this, uh, their newborn daughter. So what do we get from this? The need to learn, challenge and debate. In cases involving allegations of shaking, we've got a small pool of willing and available experts. The science on which their opinion depends is complex and controversial. The acceptance or rejection of those opinions by the court has got a pivotal outcome for the family. And but for the vigilance of some experts, we are deprived of information in the family courts that make, can make a difference to outcome. And yet, the importance of open-minded experts in case such as this is, is second to none. So, what do we do as family barristers? Well, in any given case, I have to stand up and cross-examine any one or combination of these professions, often more in one day, and certainly more than several in one week. That means pathology, the body and life, paediatrician, neuropathology, ophthalmology, histopathology, paediatric neurology, endocrinology, a neuroradiologist, 
Odontology, that's when we've got cases involving biting, particularly around the buttocks or sometimes against um, other intimate parts of the body. An immunologist, microbiologist, and then when we're thinking of anything beyond the body, we've got the psychiatrist and the psychologist. I am just a barrister. They, they are the experts who have reached preeminence in their position that give us assistance in the family courts. And how can it be that I am possibly equipped to argue and to challenge them when they come to a conclusion adverse to my client? It's what we do. As I say, I gave you the Alilas example of what we have to do. We look at the child in life. We take accounts from the neighbours. We look to see what the parents have to tell us. We listen to the 999 call. What does that tell us about the way the child was responding or the parents were behaving? We look for body cams, particularly now police officers and paramedics have them and you have them in hospitals. We look at social media. We look at the records and we do the research. A case I finished just last week was um, a case called, uh, involving factitious um, induced illness. It used to be called Munchausen's. It was where the evidence that was being um, relied upon by the local authority appeared to indicate that the baby had been injected with some type of faeces or contaminated water in its pick line. The evidence from the immunologist was that the bacteria which they had identified through the PIC line was incontrovertibly not something that came through through any hospital contamination and should not be found in the system of any child. The only way I had of challenging that evidence was to not challenge the opinion, but to challenge the facts upon which the opinion was based, which is why over the course of a very, very, very long weekend and many sleepless nights, I learned what microbiologists do. I learned that they have to take more than one sample of the blood, they don't take it from the pick line, that you take samples and controls, that one sample can give you a false positive, that's why you need two. I learned that when you withdraw the blood in the first instance, you discard the, fir you discard the first few mils, then you take your sample, and then I learned about what you have to do with hygiene. Only by that examination was I able to require the microbiologist to give evidence, where we went through the test results, where not one test matched the other, either internally on the same day or externally within comparative days. I'm not a microbiologist, but that was the way in which to query the reliability of the expert opinion, because it was by looking at the case, coming in by the side, as opposed to challenging the expert per se on the opinion they were expressing. Listen and learning is the hallmark of a good barrister. We inhabit our children, our clients' lives. Um, we decode, as I say, and dig into the medical records. We research. But most of all, what we do is we work as a team with the solicitors that instruct us and with those who have involvement with the family's life. And remember that when we are cross-examining, there is no call for cut, as per anything you might watch on telly. There is no chance to phone a friend, and there's no chance to turn around and ask for a second opinion. When I am cross-examining, it's me, the whites of my eyes, looking at the expert who's, uh, who's in the court box opposite me. And I need to know the facts. I need to know the detail. I need to know the research. Because there's no chance to come back again when you get an adverse question. And I need to understand the expert's answers in order to come back with further points that may arise. It's not like a script. I ask my questions independent of what they answer. It has to be a dialogue. And the best experts are those who genuinely reflect on the factual matters that you're putting to them. The ones that genuinely take into account what you're saying, even if having balanced it up, they may come to the same conclusion. But nonetheless, what they're doing as an expert is properly, fairly, neutrally, scientifically 
and expertly, weighing the facts you give them and coming to a conclusion upon which the court has to decide if it's persuaded by it or not. So, we're at Baker J, one of the judges I've previously commended to you, um, we have some superb judges in the family division, I think Baker J is one of them, is that when the court is hearing matters of this nature, bearing in mind that if they decide a child has been seriously abused, the outcome for any surviving children may well be permanent removal, is a family judge in that situation will be looking to hear all the evidence properly challenged in order to come to the best answer it can for the affected child. So medics are experts. It is too much of a burden on the medics to be experts in the case in which they have been intimately involved as treating clinicians. I know from doctors who I talk to on an informal basis that when a critically ill child is brought into the ward, there is a change in tempo and temperature in terms of what goes on on ward. The junior doctors know that they have to now work twice the level they do to pick up the other cases that aren't so critical because the most senior clinicians are there trying to save a child's life. That's the first moment upon which um, there is a clash and uh, human responsibility we need to acknowledge. Secondly, they then get pulled into the child protection procedure. So again, doctors I know say the second corollary of having a child abuse case on ward is you then lose the senior clinicians to the meetings that then have to take place. So in that environment, it's simply not fair to expect the medics, however senior, that are making the treatment decisions um, to, to have a continuing role in a case that may take months in order to come to fruition when further facts come to light which may criticise or may undermine or may challenge the working diagnosis they came on at the time. Back to Baker J, uh, his final quote in this case that he was talking about. It demonstrated, as he said, the crucial role played by the specialist family bar and solicitors. The role played by all of the representatives for all the parties in this case have been of the utmost importance. And what he pointed out here is that in the cases that we do, there is no substitute for good advice, whether the client may accept it or not, because the evaluation of the case has to be taken by specialist lawyers, because the judge needs the quality of that representation. And yet we are faced now in a system where there is decreased legal aid, care cases are non-means, non-merit tested, but some uh, members of the public are so um, concerned about what they perceive the injustice of the family courts to be that they may have fallen out with their legal aid solicitors for whatever reason or team, and they decide to go it alone. And there are an increasing number of cases where that imbalance of representation is coming through into the system with the most serious consequences. Miscarriages of justice... What do we learn from this? We learn that science is constantly evolving. We learn that miscarriages of justice happen when parents are wrongly accused of shaking their child based on research which is overtaken by new material. As I've said in a previous lecture, it used to be the case that if you saw bleeding within the eyes or if you saw bleeding underneath the skull and above the brain, no one thought that bleeding could be caused by the process of giving birth. And yet now we know that babies who are born, even by caesarean section, have a, have a propensity, have a likelihood to having bleeding on the, above the brain, which is entirely unsymptomatic. So it may be there, but not detected. We also know that once you've had bleeding once, it increases the likelihood of having bleeding again. And so some babies were removed by the courts based on science, saying if they had bleeding on the brain once, that was suspicious. If they had bleeding on the brain twice, that must mean that there have been at least two shakes. And we now know that was scientifically flawed. 
Equally, we know that bleeding behind the eyes is something that can happen again through the, through the birth process. We don't understand why or how. And also, evidence is emerging that retinal hemorrhaging, which we used to thought could only be called by a very a fall from a significant height. Previous papers said, you know, from the height of a 10-storey building, it can happen from short falls. And so science does evolve, and it must evolve. But the trouble is that the scientific community needs to have those debates in private because, frankly, arguing about them in court is not the best forum for having an open dialogue between um, experts when there needs to be more understanding about what is moving apace with the facts. Judge can only make a decision based on the evidence available to him or her at the time. Medical evidence mustn't see, be seen in isolation. You look at the entirety of the child's life. And human justice is inevitably valuable. We try to do the best we can on the evidence we have at the time we have it. But we have to acknowledge that we sometimes make mistakes. And then, in terms of understanding what goes on in these type of cases, there must be a better dialogue and an open dialogue and informed dialogue between the members of the public, the press who inform their view, and the practitioners who involve themselves in these cases, because otherwise the danger is that the headlines dictate what you, the public, know, rather than the reality of what goes on within these very difficult cases. Unknown cause. There's no shame in an expert saying, I don't know what happened. Every human being is unique. Our DNA is unique. That which we have as a, as a condition in our body is unique. Think about Charlie. He was such a rarity in terms of his genetic uh, construction that no other person had come across uh, an issue such as his. Last question, therefore. Why science and the courts don't have the answers? And it should be obvious by now. Science doesn't stand still. Expert evidence is an art, not a science. That explains why you can have two equally competent experts disagreeing, having looked on the same facts. They have subjective elements too, dependent on the research they've done, who they speak to, and what their belief system is. Don't elevate science to being so objective. It's the be-all and end-all and the ultimate arbiter of everything that happens in relation to um, a court decision, in relation to abuse. Don't rush to judgment when you see headlines because you don't know all the facts, and do seek out information so you understand more about goes behind the scenes. And then lastly, a plea, which is for a better and more informed debate between the public, the experts, the clinicians, and the lawyers, because as we were told as long ago as 2014 in the Cannings case, never forget that today's medical certainty may be discarded by the next generation of experts, or that scientific research or throw light into corners that are presently dark. So, concluding remarks. Isn't it simply unrealistic to expect someone like me to be able to understand each of those disciplines and to cross-examine upon them in one case where the outcome is so significant? Isn't it simply unrealistic to expect that that level of knowledge is going to be something which I can share with any other person, say by those that are in the cases with me, or that law reports themselves can indicate that which we have acquired. Don't we create creating a lottery from the clients between having the opportunity of instructing the barristers who are in the know and who do these cases all the time, whereas those who don't? Some experts, frankly, in the family proceedings courts are simply not prepared to come. They're prepared to take instructions from the criminal jurisdiction because they feel well looked after by their defence team, but they're not prepared to come to the family court. 
because of previous example where experts have been criticised for coming to a view which the court finds to be unreliable, or because we don't pay enough because it's on legal aid rates, or because they simply don't have the time to take on our work when they've got other work they could do, both in their clinicians and their experts' practice. And if they aren't willing to become in family cases, what does that mean about the balanced view that we need to hear and understand? The other issue, which is a critical one, is 26 weeks or thereabouts. In the Alalas case, we were able, over the course of two years, to work collaboratively with the criminal defence team and to take the challenge on in the family case, which resolved the, the case in favour of the parents, even though the standard of proof was lower, balance of probabilities. We could not do that under the current strictures of, of concluding a case within 26 weeks, because by the time the case, family case ended, so far as Jada was concerned, she was 18 months old. In cases now, unless there is good reason to delay the proceedings by the instruction of experts, the family case won't wait for the criminal trial to be concluded. And in that situation, there is a real risk. The decision may be made that leads to the eventual placement of a child for adoption, even though subsequently a criminal trial may look at the same facts and come to a different conclusion. That is why the wisdom of Solomon of the judges, if not the barristers, are required when looking at cases which are so complex and so serious and have such a fundamental um, impact on the family concerned. So that's my final remarks on this. It leaves you with a final invitation, please, to come to my final lecture in this series because the one thing that I have sought to allude to but haven't said expressly until now is that in the child abuse cases that I do, there is nothing typical about the families that I come across. But the only significant uniting feature is poverty, or poverty of opportunity, inexperience, education, wealth. And that is the hallmark of those clients that we have the privilege of acting for in cases such as this. But we deal with those who have difficulty grappling with life, whether with learning difficulties, mental health difficulties, or addiction. And that's why the next lecture is focusing on the families that we deal with, because from the families come the children. So thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, thank you. You can clap. That's loud. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.